Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who was drafted by the Los Angeles Rams in the second round of the 1994 NFL Draft. He played college football for the University of Memphis, an all-pro, four-time Pro Bowl selection. He amassed 15,208 receiving yards in his career, fifth all-time. He played the first 14 years with the Rams, won a Super Bowl ring with the team in Super Bowl 34 over the Tennessee Titans. During his time with the Rams, he was the leading wide receiver of the greatest show on turf. He played for the San Francisco 49ers as well. In 2010, the Rams retired his number 80 jersey. It is a pleasure to welcome the man whose career has him headed for sure to the Football Hall of Fame, and that might even happen this week. Isaac Bruce to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Isaac. Hey, man, thanks for having me on the show tonight. Absolutely our pleasure. And before we talk about next week's big game, let's talk a little bit about your amazing career. You're a standout at Dillard High School where your head coach was Otis Gray. How important was Coach Gray to your development as a player? Well, I think one of the biggest things that uh, Coach Gray could have ever done for my career was uh, just just smashed out any sense of entitlement and um, prima donnahood. Um, he did that quite quickly. I mean, I grew up watching him do that and then have him stamp it out of me, I think is one of the most important assets that, you know, he ever could have uh, birthed in me. Uh, when you say that, how, how exactly does that happen? Uh, by, you know, making sure that you're never late for practice, uh, you never miss an assignment uh, in a game or practice. And we were constantly doing what we would call up-downs, you know, in full uniforms. <laughs> And, um, you know, he had, a, he had a rule. If you ever miss a practice, you go to the back of the line as far as the uh, depth chart was concerned. So you didn't want to be late. You didn't want to violate the rules. And uh, you wanted to do everything that he commanded you to do. From high school, you had originally signed a letter of intent to play college football for the, the Boilermakers of Purdue in 1990. Right. Your SAT scores did not meet, you know, Purdue's guidelines. What was your initial reaction to not being able to go to Purdue? Well, I was heartbroken, disappointed, uh, both of those. And, uh, I, but, you know, one thing I didn't do was uh, just throw my dream in the trash. Um, I continued to work. Uh, from there, I went to uh, junior college two years in Southern California uh, before I got a scholarship offer from the University of Memphis. But I, guess I just kept my eyes on the prize and the ultimate goal of uh, being a professional at, at football. So um, I was distracted. I think the journey that I was on was not conventional, but definitely paid off for me as far as developing me as a man. Absolutely. And, and, you know, what's beautiful is when you go back and you're able to look at the way things played out, Purdue had four miserable seasons, you know, from, from the time when you were at West uh, Los Angeles College in Santa Monica and then Memphis State. Um, you had two winning seasons in Memphis. You finished your college football career with 113 receptions, 1,586 yards, 14 yards per reception was your average, 15 touchdowns. You know, you mentioned it was not the, the typical career path, but what did you learn about yourself overcoming that initial disappointment and going through that process? Well, I learned a lot. Uh, number one, that, you know, all dreams aren't going to go as, you know, we expect them to go. Um, I thought that, you know, my journey by going to junior college really started to develop me personally um, as far as, you know, money management, uh, making sure that I got up from Inglewood and caught the bus to Santa Monica every day 
and back. Um, I was in a position where everything just wasn't smooth. Instead of giving up on the dream, I continued to push through. And each, and it, and it was amazing how each moment I got to the next step, you know, it just started to smoothen out even more. It got easier and easier for me. Um, and I was grateful for it. So you go through that journey, and draft day comes, and you're the sixth wide receiver taken in the draft when the Rams used their 33rd pick overall to take you. What do you remember most about draft day? Well, um, it was interesting, man. I mean, I had an a, a interesting draft in 1994. Um, I, I truly believed that I'd be the first receiver taken off the board. Um, I got a couple late-night calls from a couple of teams, and you know, I'm, I was looking at the 17th pick that was owned by the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I ended up thinking I was going either going to go to go there or play for the Seattle Seahawks. Um, you know, just being uh, unaware of where you would actually fall in the draft or what city that you would be living in or playing in. But I relished the opportunity of being drafted. Uh, I thought I was a gifted, a gifted young wide receiver who had a lot to learn. And uh, I was fortunate to be drafted by the Los Angeles Rams. So from the Rams, you earned the 1994 Cal Rosenblum Award given to the Rookie of the Year. You're also voted Rams Rookie of the Year by the Orange County Sports Association and the Southern California Sports Broadcasters Association. Your head coach in your rookie year that season was legendary, uh, legendary head coach Chuck Knox. One of your teammates was a 22-year-old Jerome Bettis and a 29-year-old Flipper Anderson. What impact did Flipper have on your career, and what do you remember most about your rookie season? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, Flipper, and I, I tell, told him this when I saw him last year at the playoff game in Los Angeles, how he really helped me to develop. Uh, just having a veteran presence in our uh, day-to-day operations as far as in the wide receiver room really helped me. It taught me how to be a pro, uh, not only him, but a guy by the name of Jesse Hester out of Florida State. They taught me the, the ins and out of playing the position of wide receiver. Um, I was really basing everything based just off my talent, my speed, and athleticism. But these guys initially taught me how to run routes, uh, how to get open versus the zone, how to protect myself, and to make sure that I was always available for the next play. So uh, it, 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 was, it, it, it was huge uh, just having Flipper Anderson in the same locker room with me. Isaac, this is A.J. Carter. So after your first year, your rookie season in Los Angeles, place where you actually went for half of your college career, the team packs up and moves to St. Louis. How did that affect you? How did that affect the team? What is it like when an entire team changes cities, you know, from one year to the next? Well, it was amazing within itself. I mean, I felt like, uh, you know, uh, my heart went out for the uh, fan base that was in Los Angeles at that time. I mean, we had some people that were uh, really invested in the Los Angeles Rams uh, program and everything that we offered. Um, for a young guy like myself, I, w- I was 21, and I wasn't sure that I had a home-based team as far as professional football was concerned. Um, I only no- noticed and experienced that when we go to places like Green-, Green Bay or San Francisco, how their fan base was just entrenched in rooting for their teams. Uh, the-, the move itself, when we first got to St. Louis, uh, it was amazing. We played our first couple of games in Bush Stadium, the old Bush Stadium, and they packed that place out. And it was the first, my first experience of having a home professional team, so I felt like I was a professional now. So, but the move within itself, being a young guy, uh, not having a family, it was pretty easy for me. But seeing the veterans go through it, it was a tough challenge. 
It's also interesting because with that move, Chuck Knox is fired. He's replaced by Rich Brooks. After two seasons, Brooks is replaced by Dick Vermeil, who had not coached in the NFL for 15 years. What's your first impression of Coach Vermeil, and, and what did he bring to the Rams at that point in his career? Well, I thought first, initially what he brought was a coach that had postseason experience. I thought that, you know, he had worked very hard to uh, uh, take the Philadelphia Eagles from where they were, uh, to put them in a Super Bowl for a chance to win a championship. Uh, it was strange that he had missed 14 seasons uh, of coaching in the NFL, and I had mostly known Coach Vermeer from his broadcasting days and didn't have the guy in our locker room leading our team. It was a different experience. It took, us, it took some getting used to. I think, uh, you know, the league was different, you know, prior to his coming back, and he had some adjustments to make. We had some adjustments to make. I mean, from a, a practice standpoint, uh, he had his philosophies that he believed in, and we were trained and accustomed to practice a certain kind of way. So we couldn't have both wheels. So one wheel had to be broken, and uh, he was he was successful in breaking our wheel and uh, carrying us to the next level. It's also interesting because that year also marks the year that Kurt Warner comes out of the Arena Football and NFL Europe to join the Rams. He spends a 98 season as the St. Louis uh, Rams third-string quarterback. He ended the season completing four of 11 passes for 39 yards. Did you see anything at all, you know, the time that he was with the team that year that gave you any inkling of what was going to come the following season? Uh, I have to be honest and say I was just like everyone else from that standpoint. Um, you know, I do remember Kirk being on the team in 1998. Um, I, I do remember him getting the opportunity versus the San Francisco 49ers uh, that 98 season. But, you know, there were no real flashes. I thought that, you know, um, once that season, the, the 1990 season came along, he got his opportunity. Um, you know, it was a perfect mess, mess because he received correct coaching a coach that could really develop his skills, and he just took off from there. The 99 Rams, high-powered offense, is run by the offensive coordinator, Mike Martz, who you gave a lot of credit in a great piece this week in SI. Uh, the supporting cast running back, Marshall Fork, you, Torrey Holt, Ricky Prohl. Kurt Warner puts together one of the top seasons by a quarterback in NFL history, throwing for 4,353 yards, 41 touchdown passes, a completion rate of 65.1%. The offense earns the nickname the greatest show on turf. What do you think Martz and Coach Vermeil saw in Warner that made him a perfect fit to run that offense? Well, I, I believe Coach Martz was, Martz was uh, uh, you know, paramount in just identifying uh, Kurt's uh, strengths, uh, those strengths being his accuracy, his ability to release the ball, to make every throw that you expect the NFL wide receiver to, uh, excuse me, an NFL quarterback to make. And uh, he was uh, coachable. I think that was the biggest thing, man, just his ability to observe, observe, absorb uh, information uh, in a, in a, in a office or a, a team meeting setting and take it to the field and do exactly what he's been coached to do. Um, Coach Marks was, was very awesome at doing that. I think Coach Vermeil, his, his part of it was that, you know, he put his trust in Kurt, gave Kurt an opportunity to play well. And I always thought it was just a, you know, a perfect combination of coaching and, and the player to make happen what happened that season. We're talking with NFL legend Isaac Bruce. You know, you mentioned and you, you gave them props to Flipper Anderson and, and um, Hester about teaching you how to run a route. But during your career, you were known as one of the best route runners in the NFL. 
what's the key to running a, a perfect route, and how much does the quarterback play into that? Like, Kurt Warner seemed, you guys seemed to have such an incredible timing that he knew exactly when you were going to be at the end of that route and, and it would be at your numbers. What's the key to develop, A, to running the perfect route and B, developing that rhythm where the quarterback knows you're going to be exactly where you're supposed to be? Well, I think the, you know, one answer can, one answer can answer both questions. I think uh, repetition is the key. I thought for me, as far as being a route runner, it was paramount that you know, you develop a skill set to not only survive in a league, but to thrive in it. And I always thought that separation was the key between uh, a wide receiver and a defensive back. I mean, you have both guys who probably can run a 4 3 40. Uh, they're strong. They've been in the weight room. They can explode off the line of scrimmage. Uh, they can read tendencies. But I always felt like that um, the one who would always win in the competition of getting to the football was the first guy to be out of his break. So I thought that was important. So it went from you know, cone drills to uh, hula hoop drills to just being able to explode out of your brakes and get your head around. So um, repetition was the key in that. We do it every day in practice. Uh, we throw hundreds, hundreds of thousands of routes versus air, uh, and we just, you know, mentally put ourselves in the game and to pretend that we were running those routes in the game. So by the time game time came, uh, it just made it that much easier. You took what made it easier in practice Let's go back. This is 20 years ago. And in the, in the ensuing 20 years, they put a lot of rules on the books to protect receivers and to make it right. easier. Now, you had a Hall of Fame career. Your numbers are terrific. Do you ever take a look and wonder what your numbers would have been like or how different it would have been if those rules had been in effect even then? Well, I tell you what, man. Um, I have sat back a couple of times. And, and uh, you know, just, just first of all, just watching the technique of today's wide receivers, sometimes I cringe. I you know, I ball my fist up at it, and then I think about, you know, had this guy been running this route versus what I was going going against, you know, the Runny Lots, yeah. Steve Atwaters, these guys would have tore their heads off because <laughs> you had to be disciplined in your route running versus these guys, or they would have made you pay. But just looking at my numbers, 15,000 career yards receiving uh, versus the, the, the dispensation of rules that we have today, Oh, man, I think, you know, I, I probably would have been the second guy to touch 20,000 receiving yards. That's just the way I look at it. It's also amazing to look at the tandem that you were part of, you and Holt. Uh, you know, you look at the great tandems in NFL history. You have Swan and Stallworth and, and Rice and yeah. Taylor and you and Holt. Uh, probably right there is the, the top three greatest receiving duos in NFL history. What is the key? You know, I, I go back to, to the Jets when uh, Keyshawn was here and you know, the, the line was just give me the, guy, the, the, the give damn me ball. ball. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what's the key to being a successful duo and, and distributing it and, and getting the right amount of touches when you have two such talented receivers in an offense? Well, I think the key is unselfishness. I, um, I was willing to, you know, give up uh, part of what I was doing statistically to bring another person in and not only just bring him in, but be willing to teach him uh, what I knew as far as the game was concerned. You know, if you remember, I was five years senior to mm-hmm. Tory Hope and, um, you know, have another guy. I always knew that you needed someone else to take the defense away, att- attention away from myself and sometimes put it on him. So, I mean, I was willing to do that. I was willing to be the best decoy I could be uh, to get him open, and he was willing to do the same thing. And I thought we had a perfect mesh of the way that we competed on the football field, so much so that it was hard to tell 
you know, which one of us was running the route until you, you know, basically saw the number when we got up. But I think just being unselfish, being willing to help each other and to celebrate each other's success, it was monumental for us. And that unselfishness was such a huge part of that offense in 99. You're a first-team All-Pro. You're voted to your second Pro Bowl. You catch 77 passes for 1,165 yards, 12 touchdowns on the way to the Super Bowl. You also lead the Rams in receiving yards in the playoffs, 317 yards, 13 catches with a team-high two touchdowns, leading up to catching Kurt Warren's 73-yard touchdown pass late in the fourth quarter to give the Rams a 23-16 lead, which turned out to be the game winner. Over the years of doing this show, AJ and I have had many players who have played in the Super Bowl, and it really is unlike any other major sports championship. You know, I've maintained that maybe you know the the Stanley Cup might be the the toughest championship to to get to and win, but I have to think that the Super Bowl and all the pressure that one and done does. It, it, you know, every guy we've ever had on struggles to put it into words. Could you try to explain what, first of all, when you get there and you know that from the kickoff at the end of that game, someone's going to be a champion and someone's going to go home. How do you deal with that amount of pressure and that spotlight and everything leading up to that game? Well, my my attempt is always to compare it to what we have in college football. I mean, you know, I mean, tell me who doesn't get tired of seeing, you know, who's going to make the playoff, who's going to be in the playoff, why they should be in, why, why this team is not in. I mean, and then you multiply that times a thousand. So that's that's pretty much what the Super Bowl is. You, you're talking about an event that's, you know, promoted and uh, uh, broadcasted all over the world now. And you know, just to be a part of it and have two teams standing uh, on the middle a middle of a football field attempting to uh, win a championship. I mean, you have everything in one team that that wants to stop you from winning. And you're thinking the same thing about them. I mean, you go through the conference championships uh, all the way to the Super Bowl, and it's only going to be one team standing on that podium at the end of the day. And, I mean, you talk about a sport where you're not just guarding someone, you're not just shadowing someone, but you're actually colliding with people to stop them from reaching their dreams. So I think that's the magnitude of it that other sports and other teams don't have that we have. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I always call it the beauty of football because you have those moments where, you know, you have these, these huge Goliaths that you think should win, and then the beauty of football steps in, and the Davids always take the crown home. <laughs> you know, I don't think I've ever asked this question of anybody before, but Super Bowl week is a week of distractions. It's a week. There's media day, all things that take you away from practicing, and then you get to the game. And one of the biggest differences about the Super Bowl game is this incredibly long halftime show. Yeah. What goes on? How does that set you off your rhythm? What goes on in the locker room during halftime to try and keep whatever momentum you might have had from the first half or to build up momentum for the second half? Well, yeah, uh, the, the, the half times are a bit long. Um, I remember, you know, the first half time that we had, you know, we made our adjustments early once we got in. You know, I went and got an IV, you know, to prepare for the second half of the game. And by the time my IV was finished, you know, I was I was alerted that we still had about 35 minutes to, before the second half. Um, it, it's extremely long. I mean, I think it's part of what the Super Bowl offers to its fans, the people who purchase tickets, and I get it and I understand. Um, I think, you know, just hearing the story of some, some other people who have participated in Super Bowl halftimes, what they do, I mean, they just press the reset button. I think Russell Wilson said he, you know, took off everything, took a shower, and got redressed for another half, which I thought was brilliant. 
and, uh, you know, wishing that I could have took that approach as well. But it's extremely long. I mean, guys can get dry, and normally you don't want to get dry. You like to go back out and continue what you were doing and uh, go out and try to win a game. But it's part of it, and we know that going into it. So our, our goal is to remain and keep our focus. Here's another thing, which you know, and obviously you know, professional athletes, you know, they're skilled at doing this. But in watching the game um, last week, New England versus Kansas City, when you know the Chiefs go ahead and they they take the lead, and let's say you're on the bench and you're watching what's going on with Tom Brady marching down that field, and you know that you you're going to get another opportunity. It looks like with with not a lot of time left on the clock after they score. You know, how difficult, it, you know, you go from the, the high of taking the lead in your home stadium, okay, and then you watch Tom Brady do what he does. and uh, Methodically. Yeah. And, and once you saw the coin flip, you knew it was Right. Over. How yeah. do you then regroup and say, all right, we don't have much time, we got to do this? How, how do you stay, how do you not get deflated? I mean, I was I was rooting for Pat Mahomes in Kansas City, yeah. and I was deflated. I was just like, uh. So, like, how, how do you maintain that level of compete at that point? Well, you know, our game isn't for everyone. And I think, uh, you know, it, it's called professional football for a reason, with the emphasis on being a professional. You know, we have a job to do. Uh, we, we practice that job over and over and over again during the week. Uh, we, we, we practice situational football. We, pra- we practice things like fourth and one or third and two, third and 11. Uh, those things are practiced and they go over. The repetition part of it can sometimes get monotonous, but at the same time, you have to put yourself in those positions where you say, okay, when this happens, here's what we got to do. And you got to go out and execute. So you can never really just focus on the opposing team but really on what you do, and it's the most, you know, dependent sport, sport there is, the game of football, because I need this guy next to me to do his job in order for me to do my job. And when the offense is on the sideline, I got to cheer on and trust the guys that I came with as far as on that defensive end, man. So it's a, it's a thin line, and like I say, the game isn't for everyone from that standpoint as well. From a physical standpoint, it's not for everyone as well. But you have to be a professional and do your job. So let, let's do the flip side of that. Take us down to the, the final seconds as the clock ticks down and you know you won the Super Bowl. You know, what's that initial feeling? And at that second, do you reflect on everything that's come before it, that journey, you know, you know, junior college and then Memphis and, and then your rookie year and then the move? Does everything come flooding back or, or is it just a total sense of peace and looking at that trophy? <laughs> Well, i tell you what, man, I was, uh, unfortunately, I didn't have a moment in the Super Bowl where I can just take a breath while the game was ticking down. Um, I was in two nail biters, and uh, Super Bowl 34, at the end of that game, man, I was so relieved. I, thought, I did think about uh, the move from Los Angeles and how those fans uh, felt about us winning a championship in St. Louis. I thought about that. You know, the, the, you know we have the same thing going with the St. Louis fans. As far as the Los Angeles team right now uh, is, is happening, but you know, just being able to embrace those those guys, man, just just have that brotherhood of these guys started way back with me in July, and we finally got here, and uh, we're standing with a Lombardi Trophy with the promise of a ring coming to us, and you know, it was it was exhilarating. At the same time, it was a lot of emotions in the locker room. Uh, we were very happy in the end, and we relished every moment of it from. 
walking out of the locker room to the shower, walking uh, to the uh, chartered plane and being on that plane, although it was a short trip from Nashville, excuse me, from Atlanta to St. Louis, but we relish every moment of it, man, and it was a great deal. So let's talk about the next Super Bowl you're in, the one that the Rams are heavily favored but lost to the Patriots and what was the beginning of the Patriots Super Bowl run. Of course, the last time that the Patriots and the Rams played in the Super Bowl. There was a story in the New York Post yesterday, and you were quoting the story by talking about looking back at the Patriots and how five years later Spygate developed and became public, and you started wondering whether the Patriots using the Spygate tactics then. What are your thoughts about that? Do you really think that they were stealing some sort of film that they knew your routes? Well, I think I mentioned in that article that uh, they were caught uh, uh, spying on uh, the New York Jets at that time and possibly the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, um, well, um, I think at that time we had a more prolific, a better offense than the New York Jets at that time and the Pittsburgh Steelers. I thought that, you know, if, you know, if they did it against those lesser opponents and, you know, it was their second time facing us, uh, we had played them previously in Foxborough that year and beat them, um, you know, it could be. It could be they took the, took the chance, another opportunity to, you know, do what they were accustomed to doing. And um, I just felt like in the game, you know, uh, we're, we were a very explosive team. I mean, I don't think, you know, many teams, uh, you know, within were within 14 points of us all season long. I remember the last game we played Philly that year. Uh, you know, we pulled the starters in the second half and ended up losing that game. If not for that, we I think we ended up 15-1. and one. But, um, you know, just, just seeing where those players were in that game, there were, there were players close to us where, you know, no one else has ever been all year long. And uh, we were playing on, on turf. Uh, we were playing in, in our environment, uh, in a dome. And I just felt like, you know, when that came out, you know, it kind of made me scratch my head and go, hmm, is it possible? Uh, maybe yes. Um, you know, and they got consequences for it. They got fined for it. So who knows? I mean, maybe they did. You know, following from one thing Mark was asking about emotions. So you fall behind in this game, and then in the fourth quarter, you start coming back, and Kurt Warner starts bringing you back, and you tie the game. Then you lose it on a last-second field goal by Adam Vinatieri. So what do you remember your emotions about as exciting as you get momentum and you're coming back, and then to see it all taken away on one last-second field goal? Well, uh, the emotions, went, they, were, they were very high. I felt like uh, you know, we had found, found that rhythm that we had been looking for all game. Um, you know, we scored, We did score a lot of points. I'd say 24 points, but only but seven of them went to the opposing team. And I felt like, uh, you know, we were right there. And I believe that, you know, had we got another opportunity or got the ball back or the game goes into overtime, we would have an opportunity to win the game. Um, it, it didn't happen that way. Um, they, they moved the ball down the field. Um, there was a big third down play where Brady hits the running back out of the backfield and extended the drive. I thought that you know, we were going to stuff them right there and get the ball back, but they pushed it, got got within Vinatieri's range, and uh, he did what he's been doing for for a very long time. Unbelievable. So that brings us to next Sunday. What do you think the Rams need to do to beat Tom Brady and the Patriots? Well, I think there's uh, uh, you know some rules and some principles to play in the 
Patriots. And uh, I think it starts uh, def- defensively up front um, with penetration. I think we have uh, two of the premier nose tackles in the league. And uh, we, we've known from uh, a track record that, you know, if you get uh, guys in, in Tom Brady's face, um, <clears throat> it's going to be tough. Uh, it, it, you know, they kind of, you know, flip him from being a facilitator to a football player, get him to move around a little bit and uh, kind of get him on the ground sometimes. But, you know, it's a tough task ahead of us. I think that, um, you know, we have a great offense, have a great scheme. I think uh, the, the, our playmakers on offense will make plays. And I think it truly will be up to our defense to pressure the quarterback and make plays and force some bad throws and uh, be able to not only stick around in the game but ultimately win it. So I'm excited about the matchup. Um, I'm 100% behind the Los Angeles Rams. Uh, we have a very tough task ahead of us, but I think we can, we can get the job done. You're behind the Rams, and so is everyone, with the exception of people in New England, <laughs> for the Rams, for sure. Possibly Louisiana. Yeah, but. maybe. Um, <laughs> lastly, you launched the Isaac Bruce Foundation in 2006, which focuses on health, wellness, nutrition, fitness, and education. Through the foundation, you reach out to youth and teach them at an early age the importance of a healthy lifestyle with a focus on education. Where can people find out more about the foundation and help? Absolutely. You can always go to IsaacBruce.org. That's IsaacBruce.org. Uh, find out uh, what, what we're doing through the foundation. Uh, uh, you can always make donations through that foundation, uh, through that website, and help us out. We have great sponsors that uh, continuously help us through 2006. We have the uh, scholarship uh, awards that are being uh, uh, signed up for right now via application, and they're going to start going out. So. Uh, IsaacBruce.org is the exact place where you can go get all the info that you need. Please help us out, and thank you. Isaac, thank you so much for your time. And the next time we speak to you, we want to be able to say Hall of Famer, Isaac Bruce. And we're sure that's going to happen. So thanks so much for your time tonight, and go Rams. Thank you, sir. You got it. Isaac Bruce, legendary NFL wide receiver.